Part twelve of Volume One of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. B. Volume twelve of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Numa, Part Two. After taking such measures to secure the goodwill and favor of the people, Numa straightway attempted to soften the city, as iron is softened in the fire, and change its harsh and warlike temper into one of greater gentleness and justice. For if a city was ever in what Plato calls a feverish state, Rome certainly was at that time. It was brought into being at the very outset by the excessive daring and reckless courage of the boldest and most warlike spirits, who forced their way thither from all parts, and in its many expeditions and its continuous wars it found nourishment and increase of its power, and just as what is planted in the earth gets a firmer seat the more it is shaken, so Rome seemed to be made strong by its very perils. And therefore Numa, judging it to be no slight or trivial undertaking to mollify and newly fashion for peace so presumptuous and stubborn a people, called in the gods to aid and assist him. It was for the most part by sacrifices, processions, and religious dances, which he himself appointed and conducted, and which mingled with their solemnity a diversion full of charm and a beneficent pleasure that he won the people's favor and tamed their fierce and warlike tempers. At times, also, by heralding to them vague terrors from the god, strange apparitions of divine beings and threatening voices, he would subdue and humble their minds by means of superstitious fears. This was the chief reason why Numa's wisdom and culture were said to have been due to his intimacy with Pythagoras, for in the philosophy of the one, and in the civil polity of the other, religious services and occupations have a large place. It is said also that the solemnity of his outward demeanor was adopted by him because he shared the feelings of Pythagoras about it. That philosopher, indeed, is thought to have tamed an eagle, which he stopped by certain cries of his, and brought down from his lofty flight, also to have disclosed his golden thigh as he passed through the assembled throngs at Olympia. And we have reports of other devices and performances of his which savored the marvelous, regarding which Timon the Philasian wrote, Down to a juggler's level he sinks with his cheating devices, laying nets for his men, Pythagoras, lover of the bombast. In like manner Numa's fiction was the love which a certain goddess, or mountain nymph, bore him, and her secret meetings with him, as already mentioned, and his familiar converse with the muses, for he ascribed the greater part of his oracular teachings to the muses, and he taught the Romans to pay especial honors to one muse in particular, whom he called Tacita, that is, the silent or speechless one, thereby perhaps handing on and honoring the Pythagorean precept of silence. Furthermore, 
his ordinances concerning images are altogether in harmony with the doctrines of pythagoras for that philosopher maintained that the first principle of being was beyond sense or feeling was invisible and uncreated and discernible only by the mind and in like manner numa forbade the romans to revere an image of god which had the form of man or beast nor was there among them in this earlier time any painted or graven likeness of deity but while for the first hundred and seventy years they were continually building temples and establishing sacred shrines they made no statues in bodily form for them convinced that it was impious to liken higher things to lower and that it was impossible to apprehend deity except by the intellect their sacrifices too were altogether appropriate to the pythagorean worship for most of them involved no bloodshed but were made with flour drink offerings and the least costly gifts and apart from these things other external proofs are urged to show that the two men were acquainted with each other one of these is that pythagoras was enrolled as a citizen of rome this fact is recorded by epicharmus the comic poet in a certain treatise which he dedicated to atenor and epicharmus was an ancient and belonged to the school of pythagoras another proof is that one of the four sons born to king numa was named mamersus after the son of pythagoras and from them they say that the patrician family of the emilii took its name Amelius being the endearing name which the king gave him for the grace and winsomeness of his speech. Moreover, I myself have heard many people at Rome recount how, when an oracle once commanded the Romans to erect in their city monuments to the wisest and the bravest of the Greeks, they set up in the forum two statues in bronze, one of Alcibiades and one of Pythagoras, However, since the matter of Numa's acquaintance with Pythagoras is involved in much dispute, to discuss it at greater length and to win belief for it would savor of youthful contentiousness. To Numa is also ascribed the institution of that order of high priests who are called pontifices, and he himself is said to have been the first of them according to some they are called pontifices because employed in the service of the gods who are powerful and supreme over all the world and potens is the roman word for powerful others say that the name was meant to distinguish between possible and impossible functions the lawgiver enjoining upon these priests the performance of such sacred offices only as were possible and finding no fault with them if any serious obstacle prevented but most writers give an absurd explanation of the name pontifices means they say nothing more nor less than bridge builders from the sacrifices which they performed at the bridge over the tiber sacrifices of the greatest antiquity and the most sacred character for pons is the latin word for bridge they say, moreover, that the custody and maintenance of the bridge, like all other inviolable and ancestral rites, attached to the priesthood, for the Romans held the demolition of the wooden bridge to be not only unlawful but actually sacrilegious. 
it is also said that it was built entirely without iron and fastened together with wooden pins in obedience to an oracle the stone bridge was constructed at a much later period when emilius was quaestor however it is said that the wooden bridge also was later than the time of numa and was completed by ancus marcius the grandson of numa by his daughter when he was king the chief of the pontifices the pontifex maximus had the duty of expounding and interpreting the divine will or rather of directing sacred rites not only being in charge of public ceremonies but also watching over private sacrifices and preventing any departure from established custom as well as teaching whatever was requisite for the worship or propitiation of the gods he was also overseer of the holy virgins called vestals for to numa is ascribed the consecration of the vestal virgins and in general the worship and care of the perpetual fire entrusted to their charge it was either because he thought the nature of fire pure and uncorrupted and therefore entrusted it to chaste and undefiled persons or because he thought of it as unfruitful and barren and therefore associated it with virginity since wherever in greece a perpetual fire is kept as at delphi and athens it is committed to the charge not of virgins but of widows past the age of marriage and if by any chance it goes out as at athens during the tyranny of aristion the sacred lamp is said to have been extinguished and at delphi when the temple was burned by the medes and as during the mithridatic and the roman civil wars when the altar was demolished and the fire extinguished then they say it must not be kindled again from other fire but made fresh and new by lighting a pure and unpolluted flame from the rays of the sun and this they usually effect by means of metallic mirrors the concavity of which is made to follow the sides of an isosceles rectangular triangle and which converge from their circumference to a single point in the centre when therefore these are placed opposite the sun so that its rays as they fall upon them from all sides are collected and concentrated at the centre the air itself is rarefied there and very light and dry substances placed there quickly blaze up from its resistance the sun's rays now acquiring the substance and force of fire some moreover are of the opinion that nothing but this perpetual fire is guarded by the sacred virgins while some say that certain sacred objects which none others may behold are kept in concealment by them what may lawfully be learned and told about these things i have written in my life of camillus in the beginning then they say that gagania and verenia were consecrated to this office by numa who subsequently added to them canulea and tarpeia that at a later time two others were added by servius making the number which is continued to the present time it was ordained by the king that the sacred virgins should vow themselves to chastity for thirty years during the first decade they are to learn their duties during the second to perform the duties they have learned and during the third to teach others these duties then the thirty years being now past any one who wishes has liberty to marry and adopt a different mode of life after laying down her sacred office we are told however that few have welcomed the indulgence 
and that those who did so were not happy, but were a prey to repentance and dejection for the rest of their lives, thereby inspiring the rest with superstitious fears, so that until old age and death they remained steadfast in their virginity. But Numa bestowed great privileges upon them, such as the right to make a will during the lifetime of their fathers, and to transact and manage their own affairs without a guardian, like the mothers of three children. When they appear in public, the fasces are carried before them, and if they accidentally meet a criminal on his way to execution, his life is spared. But the virgin must make oath that the meeting was involuntary and fortuitous, and not of design. He who passes under the litter in which they are born is put to death, for their minor offences the virgins are punished with stripes, the pontifex maximus sometimes scourging the culprit on her bare flesh in a dark place, with a curtain interposed. But she that has broken her vow of chastity is buried alive near the colline gate. Here a little ridge of earth extends for some distance along the inside of the city wall. The Latin word for it is agar. Under it a small chamber is constructed, with steps leading down from above. In this are placed a couch with its coverings, a lighted lamp, and very small portions of the necessaries of life, such as bread, a bowl of water, milk, and oil, as though they would thereby absolve themselves from the charge of destroying by hunger a life which had been consecrated to the highest services of religion. Then the culprit herself is placed on a litter, over which coverings are thrown and fastened down with cords so that not even a cry can be heard from within, and carried through the forum. All the people there silently make way for the litter, and follow it without uttering a sound, in a terrible depression of soul. No other spectacle is more appalling, nor does any other day bring more gloom to the city than this. When the litter reaches its destination, the attendants unfasten the cords of the coverings. Then the high priest, after stretching his hands toward heaven and uttering certain mysterious prayers before the fatal act, brings forth the culprit, who is closely veiled, and places her on the steps leading down into the chamber. After this he turns away his face, as do the rest of the priests, and when she has gone down the steps are taken up and great quantities of earth are thrown into the entrance to the chamber, hiding it away and making the place level with the rest of the mound. Such is the punishment of those who break their vow of virginity. Furthermore, it is said that Numa built the temple of Vesta, where the perpetual fire was kept of a circular form, not in imitation of the shape of the earth, believing Vesta to be the earth, but of the entire universe, at the center of which the Pythagoreans place the element of fire, and call it Vesta, and unit, and they hold that the earth is neither motionless nor situated in the center of surrounding space, but that it revolves in a circle about the central fire not being one of the most important, nor even one of the primary elements of the universe. This is the conception, we are told, which Plato also, in his old age, had of the earth, 
namely that it is established in a secondary space, and that the central and sovereign space is reserved for some other and nobler body. The pontifices also explain and direct the ancestral rites of burial for those who desire it, and they were taught by Numa not to regard any such offices as a pollution, but to honor the gods below also with the customary rites, since they receive into their keeping the most sovereign part of us, and particularly the goddess called Libitina, who presides over the solemn services for the dead, whether she is Prosperina, or, as the most learned Romans maintain, Venus, thereby not inaptly connecting man's birth and death with the power of one and the same goddess. Numa himself also regulated the periods of mourning according to ages. For instance, over a child of less than three years, there was to be no mourning at all. Over one older than that, the mourning was not to last more months than it had lived years, up to ten, and no age was to be mourned longer than that, but ten months was the period set for the longest mourning. This is also the period during which women who have lost their husbands remain in widowhood, and she who took another husband before this term was out was obliged by the laws of Numa to sacrifice a cow with calf. Numa also established many other orders of priesthood, of which I shall mention two besides, those of the Salii and the Fetiales, which more than any others give evidence of the man's reverent piety. The Fetiales were guardians of peace, so to speak, and in my opinion took their name from their office, which was to put a stop to disputes by oral conference or parley, and they would not suffer a hostile expedition to be made before every hope of getting justice had been cut off. For the Greeks call it peace, when two parties settle their quarrels by mutual conference and not by violence. And the Roman fetiales often went to those who were doing them a wrong, and made personal appeals for fair treatment. But if the unfair treatment continued, they called upon the gods to witness invoked many dreadful evils upon themselves and their country, in case they resorted to hostilities unjustly, and so declared war upon them. But if they forbade it, or withheld their consent, neither soldier nor king of Rome could lawfully take up arms. War had to begin with the verdict that it was just, and the ruler, on receiving this verdict, must then deliberate on the proper way to wage it and it is said that the dreadful disaster which the city experienced at the hands of the Gauls was in consequence of the illegal treatment of these priests. For when the barbarians were besieging Clusium, Fabius Ambustus was sent from Rome to their camp to bring about a cessation of hostilities on behalf of the besieged. But on receiving an unseemly answer, he thought his office of ambassador was at an end, and committed the youthful folly of taking up arms for the Clusiaes, and challenging the bravest of the barbarians to single combat. Fabius fought successfully, unhorsed his adversary, and stripped him of his armor. But when the Gauls discovered who he was, they sent a herald to Rome, denouncing Fabius for violating a truce breaking his oath and fighting against them before war was formally declared. 
At Rome the Fetiales tried to persuade the Senate to deliver Fabius into the hands of the Gauls, but he took refuge with the multitude, and through the favor of the populace evaded his punishment. After a little, therefore, the Gauls came up and sacked Rome, with the exception of the capital. But this story is more fully given in my life of Camillus. The priesthood of the Salii Numa is said to have been established for the following reason. In the eighth year of his reign, a pestilence, which traversed Italy, distracted Rome also. The story goes that while the people were disheartened by this, a bronze buckler fell from heaven, which came into the hands of Numa, and a wonderful account of it was given by the king, which he had learned from Egeria and the Muses. The buckler came, he said, for the salvation of the city, and must be carefully preserved by making eleven others of like fashion, size, and shape, in order that the resemblance between them might make it difficult for a thief to distinguish the one that fell from heaven. He said further that the spot where it fell, and the adjacent meadows where the muses usually had converse with him, must be consecrated to them, and that the spring which watered the spot should be declared holy water for the use of the vestal virgins, who should daily sprinkle and purify their temple with it. Moreover, they say that the truth of all this was attested by the immediate cessation of the pestilence. When Numa showed the buckler to the artificers and bade them do their best to make others like it, they all declined, except Vitorius Memorius, a most excellent workman, who was so happy in his imitation of it, and made eleven so exactly like it, that not even Numa himself could distinguish them. For the watch and care of these bucklers, then, he appointed the priesthood of the Salii. Now the Salii were not so named, as some tell the tale from a man of Samothrace or Mantinea, named Salius, who first taught the dance in armor, but rather from the leaping which characterized the dance itself. This dance they perform when they carry the sacred bucklers through the streets of the city in the month of March, clad in purple tunics, girt with broad belts of bronze, wearing bronze helmets on their heads, and carrying small daggers with which they strike the shields. But the dance is chiefly a matter of step, for they move gracefully and execute with vigor and agility certain shifting convolutions in quick and oft-recurring rhythm. The bucklers themselves are called ancilia, for their shape, for this is not round nor yet completely oval, like that of the regular shield, but has a curving indentation, the arms of which are bent back and united with each other at the top and bottom. This makes the shape ancilon, the Greek for curve, or they are named from the elbow on which they are carried, which in Greek is ancon. This is what Juba says, who is bent on deriving the name from Greek. But the name may come from the Greek anakathon, inasmuch as the original shield fell from on high, or from akesis, because it healed those who were sick of the plague, or from okmon lysis, because it put an end to the drought, or further, from aneskesis, because it brought a cessation of calamities, just as Castor and Pollux were called Anakes by the Athenians, if, that is, we are bound to derive the name from the Greek. We are told that Mamertius was rewarded for his wonderful art by having his name mentioned in a song 
which the Salii sing as they perform their war-dance. Some, however, say that the song does not commemorate Veturius Memorius, but Veterem Memoriam, that is to say, Ancient Remembrance. End of Numa, Part 2